This is Lindsay Jacobs, and I'm the host of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. In each episode, I'll have a new guest and we'll explore a topic relevant to Jero Psychology. For today's episode, I talk with Dr. Patricia Bamonti. She's a licensed clinical geropsychologist who specializes in providing psychotherapy to older adults and caregivers in an outpatient geriatric mental health setting. And in this episode, she talks to me about what it's like to work in that setting. Dr. Bamonti earned a degree in clinical psychology focusing in geropsychology specifically at West Virginia University. And then she went on to complete an internship and a fellowship with a geropsychology emphasis at the Milwaukee VA Medical Center. Dr. Bamonti, or Patty as I refer to her, she has research interests in the areas of depression and suicide in late life and coping with chronic medical conditions and adapting to related functional impairment. Currently, she serves as the secretary for the Council of Professional Geropsychology Training Programs, also known as COGTIP for short, and she's the social media overseer for the Society of Clinical Geropsychology, which is APA's Division 12, Section 2. Patty is active in training future geropsychologists, providing clinical supervision to trainees at the practicum, internship, and fellowship levels. In today's episode, you might notice that Patty and I refer to therapy clients as patients, older adults, and veterans, and we use these terms interchangeably. We use the term veteran naturally as both of us have trained and have worked in the VA setting. I do want to note, however, that the views expressed in this podcast episode are our own, and they are not the views of the United States government or the Department of Veterans Affairs. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. So today I have Dr. Patricia Bumonti on with me. I'm really excited. Um, today we're going to be talking about working in a geriatric outpatient mental health clinic. Um, but first, Patty, what I like to do with all of my uh, guests on the show is to learn a little bit more how you got interested in geropsychology or even more broadly, how you got interested in working with older adults. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me to be on today. The story of how I got interested in older adults started when I was an undergrad. I uh, was completing a major in psychology at the State University College at Brockport in upstate New York. And I began developing a passion for research there. And I knew that I wanted to go on for graduate school in clinical psychology, but I didn't have much direction beyond that. And I was very fortunate to secure a volunteer research position at a local university nearby, the University of Rochester, at their medical school. And I did that by blind emailing um, different PIs who are on research grants. And I, uh, one of them was interested. And that happened to be um, Paul Duberstein, who's a researcher at the U of R. And he studies suicide in late life and also cancer in late life. And he was interested 
interested in having me come on and work with him. And so I worked as a research assistant unpaid for a year and then um, paid for a year. Um, and I was really drawn to one, the science of um, mental health and aging and learning f from a research perspective, the unique aspects of psychopathology in late life. And I was surrounded by people doing really novel and cutting edge research and just immersed in that. So that really um, fosters sort of the nerd um, science geek in me um, <laughs> and opened up a whole new world of um, applied clinical research in older adults. But then there was this other very personal side to me that was really drawn to working with older adults. And this was gained through my work where I would go into people's homes, older adults' homes, and I would do interviews with them. And they had wonderful stories, both things that have happened in their life that had been difficult, but also things in their life that provided strength, provided growth for them. And it was just so rewarding to begin um seeing how their life had unfolded and up until this point. And the study was looking at um, older adults who are newly seeking outpatient mental health therapy and studying them. And so it was really this um, marriage of being the science um, part and being very really interested in that and then that personal um, connection and excitement that I um, gained from working with them older adult populations. And that really carved out the path of my going on to apply for um, clinical psychology PhD programs with mentors who had a specialty focus in geropsychology. That's so cool. So it you just, because this one PI. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> oh. And and um, so for your role in, the, in his study, you were mm -hmm. going out to these folks' Houses yes. and interviewing them. Yeah, so I was doing some of the interviews in their homes and some some of their interviews in an outpatient clinic, and so it was this really valuable experience of seeing them in this treatment setting, but then also in their home environment, which provides such a rich um, demonstration of the life that they've lived. Um, do you remember if um, the this I know it was several years ago, but do you remember if the the folks that you saw if many of them had had outpatient mental health treatment before, or was this their first time? I would say it was a mix. I for some it was their first um, foray into mental health treatment, and that was one of the reasons why we were conducting the study because we knew that this was an undertreated population, and we wanted to learn more about their outcomes over time. Um, and then there were some individuals who had. Um, mental health conditions throughout their lifetime, but they were maybe newer to a geriatric outpatient setting. Mm -hmm. And so um, as I learned more about the field, I realized how unique it was for me to work in my early 20s in an outpatient, geriatric-specific outpatient setting, because across the country, those are unique, both in the public, but uh, also in um, private um, medical settings. Mm -hmm. What a really cool opportunity. And I'm, I'm imagining that just, you know, the, the interviews that you did was really starting to strengthen and hone those clinical interview skills that you <laughs> use today. Yes, definitely. I don't think I appreciated it at the time. Um, I saw it more as it was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, definitely looking back at it started out those interpersonal um, core foundational skills that I use every day in my practice. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, um, so you work in a, a geriatric mental health outpatient setting. What does a typical day look like for you? 
Wow. So I would say that it's a little bit different every day. Um, I see patients um, one-on-one for individual therapy sessions, usually about an hour in length. Um, I also participate in meetings. So we have interdisciplinary team members meetings with all of our team members. I'll consult with colleagues. Um, And then I also train students. So I um, will provide supervision to students where we discuss their cases. I may um, supervise or watch a videotape of a student session and then help them plan for their work with patients from week to week. Um, So my days are a combination of my clinical work, training and education, and then um, On certain days, I also do a little bit of research in mental health and aging as well. So it's a nice mix of activities. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit about the population that you see. So what are some uh, maybe presenting problems or Mm -hmm. just individual characteristics of the patients that you work with? Sure. So the clinic I work at sees um, adults over the age of 65. um, And we see common diagnoses that you would see at any age. So things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, adjustment disorders. But laying on top of that, because we are a specialty clinic, our unique geros-specific topic. So those are things that we tend to see more commonly in late life, things like bereavement and loss, um, coping with chronic illness and disability, um, things related to medication, adherence. We see um, higher rates of insomnia and also suicide is prevalent in older adults. And so those are some of the specific topics that we particularly focus on in our clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, We also see, of course, higher rates of cognitive impairment and dementia. And so that also makes up a a subgroup of our clinic. This really brings me to one question that I had about the the importance or the purpose of having an outpatient clinic specifically for older adults. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think I think they're definitely needed. Um, of course, I'm biased, but one of the things that is a hard fact is that the population is aging and that the number of older adults is increasing exponentially every year. And the baby boomers are now 65 and above. And we've really seen that in our clinic. Our numbers have increased every year. I think we're like at three times the number of patients that we saw even five years ago. Um, and what a specialty clinic provides are um, are therapists and clinicians and medical providers who have specialty knowledge about the ways in which um, the manifestation of mental health intersects with aging topics. And this is something that you you don't generally receive in a generalist program or unless you've sought specialty training. And so what we're able to do is really integrate the knowledge of what we know about mental health and psychopathology generally, and then inform that with what we know about aging. And so there are ways in which things like depression, PTSD, anxiety looks differently in older adults and needs to be treated differently in older adults. Mm -hmm. Um, What you mentioned that you do individual psychotherapy and group psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, What types of interventions do you use most often with this population? Yeah, that's a great question. So our clinic is focuses on time-limited, evidence-based treatments. We provide a range of behavioral and cognitive and acceptance-based um, treatment modalities. So things like be, uh, behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, we also provide cognitive behavioral therapy for pain and insomnia. 
Um, we will also um, generally practice from an integrative perspective or integrative orientation in the sense that we will draw from different empirically supported treatments to put a treatment plan together that really works for the patient and their presenting problem. And so when we first start off with a new patient, um, we'll create a treatment plan, delineate you know what are the um, major presenting problems that we want to start working on, and then we start working as a um, clinician on a conceptualization for the patient, and that really drives what treatment modality we work with. Um, The group um, treatment um, is uh, a little bit different in the sense that we have some ongoing support groups. And so these are for veterans, uh, many of whom have aged with serious mental illness or maybe have an accumulation of chronic diseases that are really affecting their ability to cope. And so these are ongoing support groups where we um, really provide those core psychotherapeutic skills, validation, empathy, um, utilizing social supporting group cohesion, um, those factors that make groups really beneficial. And it's really a place for the um, patients to feel like they're not alone in what they're they're struggling with. Um, but we also provide time-limited groups that are where we take empirically supported treatments like acceptance commitment therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, and we offer it in a group setting. Um, And this is really nice because I think um, similar to the support groups, it allows uh, patients to learn from one another. And sometimes patients who are feeling quite hopeless can um, see that somebody else has come through a similar struggle. And it can um, provide a message of hope that feels differently than a, a provider trying to help instill hope in them. Yeah. And so I think that's really important. I, I, this also makes me think, too, about um, the stigma of mental mm. health, especially in this population. Yeah. And I would think that that's probably a big component, too, sort of reducing the stigma, yeah. seeing that other folks, you know, struggle with very similar issues and they're here getting treatment. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I would say that we definitely see patients who it's their first time meeting with a mental health professional. And so part of our job is to educate, demystify, and provide a uh, a safe and validating environment where we can begin um, slowly um, developing their comfort level and trust in talking about emotions and feelings and thoughts and sometimes painful or stressful or even traumatic life events. And um, depending on where the patient comes in, um, we're working not just with their own individual individual life experience, but also cohort or generational beliefs about seeking mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think things are changing for the better. There's been a lot of advocacy um, focused on um, providing mental health awareness and destigmatizing it. Celebrities have um, been part of um, advocating in that way, but there's still more work to be done, especially for older adults. You mentioned the um, the ongoing support groups. I think this is really unique, at, at least for me in my undergraduate training. I'm not undergraduate. My graduate training, um, I received uh, some training in ongoing support groups like this in an inpatient geriatric mental health facility. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a psychiatric facility, but not really any experience with that um, in an outpatient setting. And so, you know, I'm sort of thinking that this might be um, one of the benefits is sort of combating that isolation mm-hmm. issue that comes, you know. That's huge. I think if we could a- answer and solve the question of loneliness in older adults, 
or even of anyone of any age. Um, that's really um, one of the million dollar questions in our field right now because we're learning that loneliness and social isolation can be um, as detrimental to mental health or I mean to and physical health as things like um, you know biological changes like cholesterol or mm-hmm. heart disease, those types of things. Um, and so the group setting is really it provides um, it's powerful in the in because it provides connection amongst group members and sharing a lived experience in a way that they may not have ever experienced before. So it can be really powerful. Yeah. So in your work with uh, patients in in your clinic, are there, in addition to the group psychotherapies, Mm -hmm. are there other things that that you do to combat this isolation and loneliness? We try to be informed of community organizations and partnerships that we can help connect our, our patients to and to also empower them to take the initiative to make these connections. So I think it's twofold. It's it's like what's out there in the community? What can they access based on their level of functioning? Or maybe threefold now that I think of it. And empowering them because it's not uncommon for individuals with depression or anxiety to be in a really like helpless place where they don't feel like they have much control over different factors. And so one of the things I try to do with individuals who are socially isolated um, and lonely is to first understand like what do they enjoy what provides some pleasure what do they value in life and connect them as best as I can to resources like um, the Council on Aging or the local um, senior center um, that can help work with them and tailor their experience to what they enjoy and so for some people it's um, going going to bingo for the first time or attending a lunch um, or a dinner or maybe taking a trip to a local museum. But for some people, it's um, working with them to just um, go to their local coffee shop and be amongst people, maybe not interacting at first. Um, or nowadays, um, we're turning more and more to technology to help us do that. So utilize, utilizing things like meetups um, that we t- typically think of younger generations using that older adults are now using mm-hmm. and are getting more savvy and having um, greater access to things like smartphones and laptops um, using Facebook or other social media platforms. So it's it's a hard question to answer sometimes, but it also can have small solutions that can be pretty easy to implement on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. You mentioned earlier um, a little bit of just very briefly about the types of interventions yeah. that you offer in the clinic. Um, I'm curious, what are some of the most common types of interventions you use? And mm-hmm. are there any tips on adaptations that you make for working sure. in this population? I would say that the two most common therapies that I use are um, cognitive behavioral and acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, So in terms of, or a combination of both. So it's not uncommon that I'll often use mindfulness-based skills um, in a CBT um, intervention. Um, And I would say in terms of tailoring, um, we of course wanna take into account um, 
any functional limitations or sensory um, impairment that may be present. So things like slowing down, repeating information, um, if you're creating um, practice assignments or other um, stimuli that can help the patient learn the material, making sure that those are um, large print and bolded. Um, Sometimes it means um, having more sessions or adding sessions on to help foster learning and retention. Um, but I would say that in my practice, um, it's not always needed. I think that there's a uh, assumption that um, older adults always need modifications and tailoring of the treatment. Um, and I would say that by and large, most of my patients do not. Um, mm-hmm. And the patients that do tend to tend to have um, either mild cognitive impairment or de- or in some cases dementia where I really need to change um, how I'm uh, presenting material and repeating material and then sometimes involve a caregiver as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do any assessment in your position? Yeah. So assessment is a critical part to therapy. Um, and w- one of the things that we start with for any new patient is a thorough psychodiagnostic intake. Um, so this is an intake where we look at um, a biopsychosocial model of the patient. We ask about current presenting problems, but also um, we want to have an understanding of their psychosocial history and things that may affect their presenting problem and eventual our diagnostic impression of them. And so that's a combination of open-ended questions. And I also tend to use some established screeners um, that have been validated in older adults, things like the um, PHQ-9 or the GAD um, or the, yeah, GAI, sorry, or the GDS, um, Geriatric Depression Scale or Geriatric Anxiety anxiety Inventory. Um, I also might do a cognitive screener if I suspect some cognitive impairment is involved. And because we are an evidence-based clinic um, and we want to focus on patient outcomes, we reassess symptoms over time. And so we may reassess symptoms monthly or um, depending on the treatment um, at every session or um, every two months. It really just depends on the type of patient you're working with and how much you think you need to reassess. Mm -hmm. Um, But that helps provide a roadmap to how the patient's responding to treatment above and beyond their own report and your observation of them in this session. Yeah. I I know in working with older adults, you might have someone in the therapy room who is very new to therapy. This is their very first session in this intake. And um, sometimes you might get a patient who is a bit verbose. And I'm curious, you know, if you've got 50 to 60 minutes to do the intake, what are the most important aspects of the intake that you think mm-hmm. that you should focus on if you, you know, if, if you have a limited number of questions that you can ask? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it it comes up um, commonly enough. One, before I answer what I think is most important to focus on, I will say that one of the things I have found helpful is when I know I'm working with a patient and doing an intake, I will preface at the beginning that this is going to be a question-heavy appointment. Um, It's going to be a little bit different than a a therapy session in the sense that I'm going to ask a lot of questions, and then I might need to interrupt and move the patient along um, to get things done. And I found that just prefacing the session with that helps when I do need to interrupt, and Mm -hmm. it helps the patient sort of understand why I'm doing that. Um, In terms of what to focus on, um, I want to I want to gather enough information so that I can make a hypothesis about a diagnosis or come to a 
clear diagnosis. And so that's asking about symptoms, frequency, duration, history. Um, you want to definitely focus in on any safety issues. So for um, any patient that would be suicide and homicide ideation, um, and in our older adult population, any um, signs of elder abuse or neglect. Uh, because we do work with an older population, I also ask about their functioning. So how are they doing with their um, in, in, uh, instrumental activities of daily living and their activities of daily living, things like bathing and toileting? Um, this may be um, a way that we can provide um, extra support in the home eventually if they're having difficulties in this area. And then I like to ask about um, strengths. So social support in their life, religiosity, um, hobbies and leisure activities, um, things that um, create meaning in their life. And so that, um, and then I would say the last piece is uh, any medical con conditions that may be affecting their um presenting problems, so things like chronic pain, um, uh, obs obstructive sleep apnea, um, arthritis that we know has a close link to mental health. And usually with that information, I have um, enough to make a d initial diagnostic impression and to begin formulating a conceptualization of the mm -hmm. patient. Um, you mentioned earlier <clears throat> the uh, that there are other team members or rather other disciplines mm -hmm. that are in the clinic. Um, and I'm curious about your experience in working with an interdisciplinary team in an outpatient setting yeah. like this. Well, I'm very fortunate to be working in an interdisciplinary team. And I think more clinics, regardless of the age or training, needs to be in this model. Um, so I work with um, psychiatric providers. So they provide medication counseling. I work with social workers. Um, and I also work with trainees of various disciplines. Um, and I, it, it's a great working relationship and it's very patient-centered in the sense that we often share patients, we can um, discuss treatment plans mutually, um, we can problem solve about patients. We often, we call them in-house consults or in-house referrals where we may refer a patient, a medication provider may refer a patient for therapy or a therapist may refer a patient for medication counseling. Um, and it truly is the best type of environment to treat the patient as a whole person. And it's it serves as a um, one-stop shop for the patient so they don't have to go to two separate clinics to get their medications and receive therapy if mm -hmm. they need both. Um, it also just provides um, different perspectives on um, patient issues. Um, so um, working with social work, they tend to have a, a really good understanding of systems issues. Um, so how to connect patients to certain um, supports in the community or figure out transportation or connect caregivers to resources. Um, and so I will even though I've learned a lot in the years I've been working there, I will still go to our social work staff for those types of questions. Like, hey, I'm still trying to figure out how do I get the patient here on this day? They, they don't drive anymore and they will help me um, connect them to transportation resources. And working with our psychiatric providers, they provide, um, I think, uh, such a rich um understanding of um, sort of the biology of, of mental illness. Um, and it, it's particularly helpful when you're working with a patient with more serious mental illness like bipolar or really severe major depressive disorder where having those medications um, on board in conjunction with therapy produces the most effective outcomes. Mm -hmm. So it's really valuable to have their input. I would think too, with, you know, with all of these different providers 
located in the same clinic, you know, being able to do warm handoffs, that that could, mm-hmm. would also just increase a you know patient's mm-hmm. willingness or openness to mm-hmm. engage in other types of Definitely. treatment. Definitely. So I'm imagining that there are probably students who are listening to this podcast today and they might want to know about specific competencies that one might need to work in an outpatient geriatric mental health setting like this. Mm -hmm. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so in the field of geropsychology, we do have delineated um, competencies. They're called the Pikes Peak um, competencies for practicing with older adults. The APA has also issued practice guidelines for working with older adults. Um, and so I like to think of these as they're your foundational clinical psychology competencies that you would need to work with a patient of any age, but then tacked onto them are geospecific um, s- skills, attitudes, and knowledge. So these are things like um, having a good um, foundational knowledge of psychopathology in late life, of attitudinal factors that could influence treatment of um, sort of the medical or um, how medical conditions can affect uh, mental health in late life. Um, And then also having um, the attitudes of a geropsychologist. So these are things like addressing your own biases and stigma of working with um, older adults, um, understanding how ageism may affect an individual's um, willingness to seek treatment and stay in treatment and confronting your own ageist beliefs. Um, And then skills are things like um, being able to um, appropriately select um, screening instruments and assessment in older adult populations um, and um, have good conceptualization skills and how um, mental health may um, manifest in late life. And then your intervention skills working with older adults. So, um, your basic interventions that are empirically supported, but understanding how they may need to be tailored or adapted to a late life. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned the APA's guide to working with older adults and the Pikes Peak model. Um, I'm wondering, are, are there any specific resources that you would direct students or trainees to go to yes. to learn more? Yeah. So um, one helpful website um, is the Gero Central website. So this is a website that was put together to be a, a depository of resources. So there'll be different links um, to articles, to measures, to instruments, to Gero related content. Um, we also have the Society of Clinical Gero Psychology. So this is a division. Um, it's part of Division 12, which is Clinical Psychology of the American Psychological Association. It's called Divisions. 12 section 2 um, and this is um, students can sign up and receive announcements there are workshops there are networking um, opportunities at um, the APA annual conference um, and it's also can provide resources on their website, um, the Society of Clinical Geropsychology website. And then we also have COGTIP, which stands for the Council of Professional Geropsychology Training Programs. And um, this, they also have a website with various resources and links. So I would, I would recommend that students check those out. Mm-hmm. And then I have one last question. It may feel like I'm kind of jumping around a bit, but this thought just popped up in my head. So you know, had mentioned a lot of times you're using, um, you know, interventions that you would use with any sort of population, CBT, ACT. Um, are there any GERO-specific mm-hmm. interventions um, mm-hmm. that you use in your work? 
Yeah. So one of the JARA specific interventions I use sometimes are things like life review and reminiscence therapy. So life review is a um, evidence-based therapy where you help you help the individual integrate aspects of their life. So it's more looking at um, from a developmental perspective. Um, <clears throat> things that may have occurred in their life, how they've understood those, how they've interpreted gains and losses. And the goal is to help treat depression, anxiety, and late life by helping them reconcile aspects of their life and integrate that into a whole. And so it focuses on a lot of like meaning making and growth um, and looking at how their life has unfolded. Within that, there may be um, things like self-compassion and self-forgiveness that we may use, mindfulness of emotions that may come up, the processing of natural emotions of things that may have been difficult in their life, and then ultimately fostering growth. Um, this is where I see that integrative approach really yes, coming in. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, the other uh, thing we'll use is reminiscence therapy, which is different from life review. So in reminiscence, the goal is to... Um, to foster positive memories of the past. It's often used well in people with cognitive impairment in dementia. And the act of reminiscing itself can have mood lifting effects. Um, and it can also be done in a group setting. So you have that social aspect as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have dignity therapy. And this was an um, intervention des- designed for end of life. Um, it's, it's a little bit similar to life review, but it helps the patient um, produce an actual document, which is a narrative of their life. Um, And so it can help with um, sort of any end-of-life conflict or death anxiety um, or regrets that they may have and help them put a – help resolve those, but also put a document together that really speaks to the legacy they've left. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be really rewarding, not just for the patient, but often for family members if um, that – the patient chooses to share that document with them. Yeah. Well, I think that that's all I have for today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's exciting talking about my work. Yeah. That's all for today's episode on the Jero Psychology Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and visit the website at www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in hearing specific topics, please feel free to leave me a comment on the website. Also, follow me on Twitter at the Jero Podcast. <laughs>